welcome to No Page Unturned, the podcast where Christina, Steph, and myself, Josh, go in-depth discussing books, mainly focusing on those written by BIPOC and LGBTQ plus authors. You don't have to read along with us, but be warned, there will be spoilers ahead. Hello, everybody, and welcome to No Page Unturned. We are so excited to talk today with Lev A.C. Rosen, author of Lavender House, which was one of my top books of last year, uh, and the upcoming The Bell in the Fog, the sequel to Lavender House. Uh, Straight up, I just really, really love this book. So I'm so excited to be talking to you today, Lev. Uh, Listeners, heads up, you probably noticed I sound awful. Uh, I have COVID, uh, but it's okay because, you know, Lev is the one who's we're here to listen to, not me. So we're just, we're just going to soldier on. <laughs> um, yeah. So Lev, uh, why can you uh, tell, tell the readers a little bit about yourself? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, my name is Lev Rosen and I write um, for a variety of ages uh, in YA, I write under L.C. Rosen, um, and uh, my most well-known uh, YA is probably Camp, although uh, my other YA, Jack of Hearts and Other Parts, is one of the most banned books in the country. What? So maybe that's known for different reasons. And then uh, under Adult, I write a bunch of stuff, but most recently, Lavender House and The Bell in the Fog, the Andy Mills series, which are... Uh, historical mysteries in 1950s San Francisco, specifically within the queer community there. Yeah, actually, I, I want to backtrack a little bit. I did not realize that you had an extremely banned book. Uh, tell me more about that. Yeah, according to CBS, it was the 23rd most banned book in the country last year. Um, I don't know what else to say. It that's is disheartening just, and sometimes yeah, upsetting. That's <laughs> fucking buck wild, man. Yeah, it's not it's not my favorite thing. Um, yeah. Luckily, like I'm not top ten, so I don't get like the outrageous hate that um, my friends who are more banned <laughs> than Jeez. I am uh, do. But it's not the best, uh, and um, yeah. But I am sort of you know I I'm really. I do get to see a lot of people fight for it, a lot of librarians and school librarians, and that's extremely encouraging. That that means a lot. So I see the best and the worst, sort of. Yeah. yeah wow. That's a that's a uniquely terrible experience. <laughs> yeah. Not as unique as I'd like. But... I guess. I guess. Yeah. Ugh. So where did the idea for the uh, Evander Mills books come from? Uh, yeah, so I grew up on, uh, those old Bogart and McCall movies. I love those. I love all the noir. And, uh, you know, as I got older, I got into the books too. Uh, so I've read everything by Chandler. I love Chandler. And I always wanted to do something in that space. I love mystery. I love noir. Um, but as an adult, in uh, earlier in my career, it really felt like writing queer characters was almost a death sentence for a book. Either you'd get a very small publisher and it would be like a very niche book or you wouldn't get any attention at all. Um, and that was sort of why early on, especially I focused on just writing female protagonists 
Um, but then in YA, there was this sort of blossoming of uh, queer protagonists and this acceptance. And I started writing YA. And after a couple of those, I sort of felt like, okay, you know, I'm established as a gay writer. I've always wanted to do a historical mystery. Uh, you know, how am I going to, like, can I make this queer? Is that something an adult world is ready, adult book world is ready for? And uh, I decided, hopefully it was. <laughs> and uh, I decided to go for it. And um, there'd always been sort of a bunch of ideas for how to do that bouncing around in my head. But the real catalyst for Lavender House was I was watching... Um, one of the prime adaptations of Christie, uh, I think it was Ordeal by Innocence. Mm -hmm. And I remember watching it and it was, it's a fun adaptation. It's very campy. The house is like 90% staircase. And <laughs> uh, I remember watching it and being like, this is fun, but how much more fun would it be if everyone were gay? And, <laughs> and that was sort of the way in. And it was a little more Christie than I anticipated than Chandler, since that was sort of, what I, I thought I was going to be doing, but uh, it was a really good way in and a good way to start the series. And I got to get more Chandler in the, the sequel, The Bell in the Fog. On, that makes so much sense now, as you were saying that, because uh, I I think I remember like, I, I, I think when I, when I reviewed Lavender House, I was like, it's Agatha Christie, but gay. <laughs> yeah. But there there was a definite there, yeah there was a definite shift in tone in in the bell in the fog um it which i really really loved i love that the story and the people and kind of everything and it felt like a little bit more mature mm -hmm. um it i love me i don't know if it i didn't think of it as a shift in tone i thought of it as almost an environmental shift yeah makes sense you know like in Lavender House, we are constrained to this house. Yes. And that gives it that very Christy feel. But in The Bell in the Fog, he's going all around San Francisco. He's talking to different people. He's going here. He's going there. And that, to me, made it more traditionally Chandler. But I, I like to think, I don't know, I like to think that in Lavender House, I still managed to achieve a sort of noir tone, even if the setting was very Christy. Mm-hmm. So what made you choose this time setting in particular, like the, the 50s? Uh, yeah, so I chose 1952 because starting in 1952, uh, due to a lawsuit, gay bars were technically legal in the state of California for like three years. Okay, <laughs> and you you go into that a bit in, in The Bell in the Fog. Um, mm -hmm. And I mentioned it too in Lavender House, but it was uh, this lawsuit the black cat which was a gay bar owned by a straight man um and it's the bar andy is caught in in lavender house um is uh essentially they're raided time and time again uh and what the, the law then was that you couldn't serve alcohol in a uh, place where gay people congregated because a place where gay people congregated was considered like a house of ill repute, like a brothel. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and so they kept raiding and shutting down and taking the liquor license and this guy sued and he won. The, the California Supreme Court said, no, we can't you know, discriminate and not serve gay people alcohol. 
However, that doesn't mean gay people are allowed to be gay. So dancing was, there was very clear ruling, dancing still not allowed, kissing still not allowed, public displays of affection, et cetera. Um, all of that's still not allowed. And that really, we get to explore that a lot more in The Bell and the Fog um, because we see these various gay bars, all of which are inspired by real gay bars of the time. Um, and the ways they deal with the constant raids, because the police were still looking for ways to shut them down because they knew they were gay bars. Mm-hmm. You know, they, that was the thing. These bars didn't have to hide anymore. <laughs> um, they advertised in the, their drag shows in the newspaper, but they uh, still were illegal in many aspects if they had dancing, if they had touching, if the drag shows were viewed by the cops to be, to be uh, deception as opposed to entertainment. Uh, there are all these ways that the cops could shut them down and all these ways that the bars had to fight each of those specific uh, uh, little rules. And it resulted in a lot of sort of weird laws and strategies that I had fun sort of exploring in this one. Uh, that actually, you know, uh, it goes pretty much hand in hand with my next question. So, uh, like you said, in the last book, you know, was very much the house. This book really broadened out to San Francisco and and yeah, the queer culture of San Francisco at the time. And, um, you know, I think we're, there's more of it now, but you don't you, like up until like relatively recently, you didn't see a lot of kind of like pre Stonewall queer culture, um, even though it was obviously very much there. So what was, you know, the, the research process and, you know, how was it to kind of look into and, and learn about what the queer culture at the time was? And, and like you said, like these weird little legal loopholes and how people figured out how to exploit it and still try to live the best life they could under this oppressive system. Mm-hmm. I'm really, really lucky in that there is a book <laughs> called Wide Open Town by Nan Alamilla Boyd. Uh, and it is essentially the history of queer San Francisco up until 1965. So it is uh, all the research I could ever do. And like I used it for the first one and I used it even more for this one. Um, it has so much stuff about all the specific bars, all the laws. I'm extraordinarily lucky I have this text. Um, and that was that was a big part of my research. Um, but there also was the sort of other aspect of the Bell in the Fog, which is Andy's past in the military, in the mm-hmm. Navy. Um, and for that, I used uh, Alan Berube. I have not sure I'm pronouncing that right. I think it's more French than that. Uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, Coming Out Under Fire, which is an excellent text on essentially the queer culture of the military in World, World War II. And uh, that was fascinating as well. Yeah. It's always so fun. Like I knew about pre-Stonewall queer history. Like my introduction was sort of learning about the Mattachine Society in college Mm -hmm. and I was always sort of fascinated with them and I'm excited to bring them into one of the Andy Mills books at some point Mm -hmm. but um the Mattachine Society was and I I mentioned them in one of my YA books actually camp um they were this pre-Stonewall gay rights organization that 
there originally there was uh they were different but like a year or two in essentially there was a huge split and the founders were ousted and they became this uh organization of activism via conformity and they felt very strongly that the thing that made the that the only difference between gay people and straight people was who they were attracted to and there was no such thing as like gay culture and so the best thing that gay people could do for their rights was to essentially behave as normally, and I'm doing little air quotes there, <laughs> as possible. So the like the, the story that I tell in camp is of a woman who, when she joined the Madison Society, was butch. She, uh, you know, wore pants and all that, but uh, she was pressured into conforming and wearing dresses and heels. And the first time she wears heels and walks across the room, everyone applauds um uh, because like finally she's a normal woman and that's what's important um she's still allowed to be gay according to them but she had to be what everyone else was that was how they earned their rights and that's like such a weird boot looking yeah. like mentality that we still see today in many yeah. ways oh yeah and like it's so interesting to me um, and they were like the first gay rights organization to protest in front of the White House. Like, so they have this big established history that we have, for the most part, forgotten, but is also so interesting because it like speaks to the conversations the queer community is still having. And so uh, that was my introduction. And ever since then, it's been like, ooh, let's read. And it gets so complicated and fascinating and there's always more to uncover about queer history. And, you know, I have I have three books out this year, which is insane. But uh, they all sort of interact with queer history in some way or queering history. Um, and, you know, the, uh, the book I had out earlier in the spring is uh, essentially a gay YA Indiana Jones. And it's about the sacred band of Thebes, this gay ancient Greek army that you know we never talk about and the way history is constantly covered up and like and they were roommates sort of thing <laughs> um uh, and uh you know then in november i have a queer ya retelling of jane austen's emma out which is like great because i get to like be like yeah guess what we get to interact with these historical texts too um and so being able to have this year where i'm essentially like living in all this queer history that people don't talk about has been wild and like really fun. I love that. One of the things I really loved about this book was uh, Andy's growth. Uh, mm -hmm. It felt really earned. Um, you know, often I think in mysteries the the investigator character is such a fixed point. They don't change a lot. Um, so what made you decide to have Andy experience that growth? I mean, I felt like I couldn't not. <laughs> I you know, it, it sort of gets back to the same thing we were talking about with sort of the scope and the setting. And in the first one, Andy is very much like reckoning with who he is. And he is, um, you know, he starts the book suicidal and he sort of, even though he knows he's gay and he's been having sex with men for a while, um, he's lived two sort of half lives. Uh, one where he's like going out and having anonymous sex and one where he's a cop, but like no social life. And 
you know, I think Elsie calls him on that at one point and is like, you've had like two shadows of lives, but you haven't had a real life. And now, you know, one of those lives has ended. And so you think everything's, you know, not worth having anymore, but actually you can make this other one into a full life. You could do that. You could be this person. And I wanted to, and by the end of the book, he sort of is there. He, he, is like, oh, I can possibly be a gay, happy person, maybe under these circumstances. However, <laughs> I was also a cop and like I was, you know, responsible or I partook in the system that oppressed so many of these people who are now welcoming me. And so the second book opens with him being like, oh boy, <laughs> I got to get up to people. I got to you know, and part of that is that this, you know, everyone knows he was a cop. And so he's not getting much work as a PI for the queer community. Um, but part of it is also like he knows he he has to essentially do penance in some way. And he has to help people in some way. And that's what he wants to do. And it's what he wants to make a living off of, partially because that's what he always wanted to. He always wanted to help people. And that's also why I get into so much of his past here and his past of the Navy and like what drove him to join the cops, the fear that, that drove him to join the cops. And also the fact that he always wanted to be someone who helped people. And now he's being given this opportunity to help his people, but no one really trusts him. And he understands that. So how is he going to show that he's trustworthy? And that to me is like, you know, he earned a family's trust in the first one. And now he has to earn a community's trust. So the scope grows and he has to grow with it. He has to prove himself over and over again. I think that's really important because he he is culpable. He has made huge mistakes if, if he wants to be accepted into this community he needs to make up for them. And he gets to make out with Gene. Yes, he does get Yay. to make out with Gene. <laughs> one of my favorite parts of the whole book. I was like, yeah, kiss. That's so funny. Uh, my, my editor was uh, very much on like, remember this is a mystery, not a romance love, because like I write romances too. <laughs> Sometimes my editor had to essentially be like, Lev, this is too much. <laughs> this is too lovey dovey. No. Noir. No. <laughs> Smooches. It's great. Um, and actually, in that vein, you know, I think they really broadened out the cast of characters in this book as well. Like, like you said, Lavender House. You know, it's there's there's a there's people in there. It's very focused group. Um, but we met a lot of people in this book, uh, both kind of in. Andy's past, his present, um, uh, Lee in particular, like hero, stole the mm -hmm. book in a <laughs> lot of ways. Uh, I, I <laughs> made me actually Google the or, origin origination of uh, Girl Friday. <laughs> it was like yeah. something I was like, I don't actually know where this comes from. It's just something I've heard for my An whole amazing life. Amazing movie. Well, <laughs> it comes from before that, but uh, the movie, you got to watch the movie, Rosalind Russell. Oh my God. So good. Okay. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Like, how did you kind of approach uh, how you were going to uh, add all these new characters? Cause there's quite a, it's quite a diverse bunch. Yeah. I mean, I knew going in, like I had to leave 
most of the cast of Lavender House behind because, like, they couldn't follow him into the city. Yeah. Part of their whole thing is, like, they have to stay private. The right. only one who could follow him was Elsie. And so she does. She is, you know, a main character in the book and will probably be a main character in all the books going forward. Excellent. Um, and I knew that Jean, who was mentioned in the first book, had to come back because he works in the Ruby and there was... You know, I couldn't just leave that hanging. Absolutely not. There would be a rebellion. Jean is back and uh, had to become a main character. And then uh, I knew I wanted, essentially I wanted him to have a girl Friday. Yes, (laughs) I would love it. What would that look like for a detective working over a gay bar? Like he can't have a secretary, you know, like that's. Like he can't afford that. Mm-hmm. So and he's stationed next to the dressing rooms for all the drag queens. <laughs> um, so what like why not a drag queen girl Friday? What would that look like? Who would that be? And I uh yeah, that's where Lee came from. And like why would essentially it was like why would Lee be interested in filling that role on top of being a drag queen a drag performer? And uh it was about Lee's own love of mystery. And that's that developed a lot of Lee, essentially. Um, and yeah, so that became my core, essentially. You know, they all sort of fit roles. You know, there's the, essentially, the Elsie almost is the boss, Lee is the girl Friday, and then Jean is the love interest. And so that's my core four for all the books going forward, knock on wood, until... <laughs> decide to start killing people um, <laughs> no <laughs> uh, um, and then i knew obviously there had to be other characters every book has to have a cast of suspects and i knew i wanted to delve into andy's past so we have the mysterious x in the form of yes. and we have helen uh his old friend who he fell out with essentially um you know he hasn't spoken to james or helen in like six seven years and uh since i was exploring the queer bar culture and doing all these different bars um uh i knew there was going to be a lesbian bar inspired by tommy's uh and that meant drag kings and i wanted to have fun with that and i think it we get into spoiler territory here, but Helen's introduction was the first thing that came to me for Helen, and that sort of formed her character. It's it's quite the introduction. So. I love that scene. Yeah. I I am normally someone who would never say this out loud because it just sounds so terrible. Like if I ever heard another author, but whenever I come to that scene again, I still get chills. I love that nice. scene so much. I, um, yeah. And I never do that with anything else. I'm just, <laughs> you know, it sounds I'm the worst. Feel free to hate me, but I literally still get chills. I love that scene. Um, uh, so yeah, Hel- I love Helen so much. I love James yeah. too. And I got to bring in a bunch of other people, uh, you know, other suspects. So Donna, Donna, tragic Donna, oh, Donna, um, Donna and Danny. Ooh. Yeah, Donna and Danny and Sydney. And, uh, you know, and um, uh, the uh, the character who appears halfway through the book that yes. we're not going to. Yes. Um, and then also, like, smaller characters. So, like, the bartenders at each of these bars and the, just the vibe of each of the bars themselves. Those were all so much fun to write. And I do 
like I have a list. Like these are people I want to bring back the nice. smaller characters even. Um, so, you know, that that's my plan. I have two more books coming in the series. Wow. Um, but I am hoping for many, many more. Me so too. get out. Yeah, but that, <laughs> that's all sales dependent. So everyone go out and buy, you know, just like 300 copies of this book. <laughs> uh, if each of you did that, I'm sure we'd be fine for like several more books in the series. Um, but yeah, I really do want to bring everyone back. I am excited for that. I think, who do I bring back in the third one? I just turned in the third one of First Draft. Wow, so you're you're working pretty far ahead. Oh, you have to. That's how it works. In yeah, fact, okay. uh, uh, I think this series is my like closest. I only have to turn them in like a year ahead oh. uh, with my uh, young adult stuff. I have to turn everything in 18 months before wow. it's published. Yeah, because they have to, you know, now there's edits and then there's copy edits right. and they're designing and then there's publicity and a cover and all this stuff. So they have to, you know, all that takes a while. Um, but yeah, I'm always, uh, essentially one book ahead in my head. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm very excited for that because <laughs> yeah, I have, uh, I have super enjoyed both of these books and, uh, I, I really like this one. No shade on, on Lavender House. It was a great book too. <laughs> this, this book is fantastic, dude. It's you really love them all without playing favorites. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, no, I, I, I'm really proud of this one. I, I think I took everything I wanted to do in Lavender House and I expanded it in a way that felt real and yeah. felt true to what I was trying to do and like where I want this series to go. And it's a little scary because sequels are really hard, you know, yeah. Sequels, oh, yeah. and not like, you know, keeping everything consistent and then. Uh, my editor and I had to have long talks about making sure people could like read this as a standalone, which mm. to me was like insane, but was very important to her. And apparently that's something people do. I don't um, understand that. But yes, I've heard that a lot too. Yeah, I don't understand it at all either, but it is a thing. Some um, people want, like to watch the world burn, I guess. <laughs> uh, and so it can, it does work as a standalone. We worked very hard. Nice. Um, but I, I'm just so excited to keep going. Like the third one, and I get to keep exploring these little niches of queer history. So like the third one has to do with gay book services, which were uh, these essentially book of the month club for gay people in the 50s. And they were very popular. There were so many gay books in the 50s. So many. Like, and we don't remember any of them except maybe, maybe... uh, you know, the the pillar in the city and uh, that kind of stuff. Like, but there were so many that like, there were these book services and you can sign up and get a bunch of books a year, except sending uh, indecent material through the mail was a federal crime. And so the post office started cracking down. And so that is like, you know, another fascinating little bit of queer history that I get to poke at and play with and like ah and I get to play with all the noir archetypes I love too so like oh yeah it's just I love it so much I love it so much (laughs) amazing okay well uh is there anything else that you would love to brag about talk about tell people about the bell and the fog that's such an open-ended question yeah I know (laughs) 
I mean, we already talked about Helen's introduction, which I think is probably my favorite moment. And I'll say that if you listen to the audiobook of Lavender House, we have the same narrator, Vikas Adam, um, who is just amazing um, and has done an equally amazing job. I just got the audiobook um, and, and I've been listening to it. Uh, he's just so good. He's so good. Um, and uh, so I can't, and he also, does audiobooks for Chandler. So like, I love uh, it. Yeah. Um, so I'm, yeah, that I, I, if you like audiobooks, he's, it's extremely good. Um, and yeah, I'm really excited. Oh, and one other thing I'm excited is that the song, there's a song and I've been doing this with all the books. I, I mean, I Andy has this weird thing with music where like he knows all the music and that's like a little quirk. But one fun thing I've been doing is finding public domain songs that were still being played in the 50s because public domain at this point is like songs from the 30s, 20s um, and uh, putting the lyrics in because you can't put song lyrics in unless they're public domain. Um, and the one I found for this one, which is called My Buddy, <laughs> and it was like uh, a song originally written in World War One time, but it was played a lot during World War Two. Frank Sinatra covered it, um, and it is the gayest thing in the world. <laughs> um, and like it was so much the theme of World War Two that like when you enlisted or were drafted, you were encouraged to find a buddy. You had books that were like, I, uh, oh, this is the thing to brag about. I have one of these books. I bought it on eBay. Um, a World War II My Buddy book, which were like Facebooks for your troop. <laughs> and it's like this book where you're supposed to like put a little picture of each of the friends you meet and write things about them down so that you remember who is who in your troop. And like, <laughs> so it was like, you know, everything was buddy this, buddy that. They had, everyone had a buddy. And then there's this song playing all the time. This song, which I, I'm not going to, you know, torment your listeners right now by. <laughs> but the lyrics are, um, and it's sung by a man. Uh, I miss your voice and the touch of your hand. I long to know that you understand my buddy, my buddy, your buddy misses you. And <laughs> like, it's just like. A what? song about camaraderie. <laughs> What was going on? <laughs> Just wild. Uh, oh, so wow. you can find Frank Sinatra singing My Buddy on YouTube, and I highly recommend you do. Um, yeah. That, that is delightful. Yeah, that is. Uh, and, you know, I would love, if I knew a singer who I was, like, close with, uh, who had recording equipment, I would ask him to cover My Buddy so I could use it as, like, a book trailer thing. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> So if you are a singer and you yes. sing my buddy, please tag me. Uh, yeah, I post it. I'll be thrilled. Get all the my buddy uh, covers going. Make it top song of 2023. Yeah, let's bring it back. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Okay. Well, the Bell and the Vogue is out on October 10th. Is yeah. there anywhere uh, that people can find you on the internet, find your books, all that fun stuff? Yeah, I'm Lev A.C. Rosen, L-E-V-A-C-R-O-S-E-N, no dots, no spaces, on all social media. I'm mostly on Instagram now because Twitter fell apart and I don't know where we're yeah. going next. And 
I don't know. I, it's so much easier to post a photo of my cat than like come up with something witty. <laughs> and so, people love cats. Yeah, exactly. And my cat's real cute. Um, so that's usually where you can find me, levacrosen.com. Um, if you want signed copies of The Bell in the Fog, you can pre-order them. Uh, when is this released? It's coming out before it, the 10th. This can come out whenever you want it to come out. Oh, okay. Well, if it's out before the 10th, uh, in fact, if it's out before... Um, let me check my calendar. If it's out before the 16th, I think, or the 17th, really, um, if you pre-order it from Murder by the Book in Houston uh, and say you want to sign copy, I will be signing copies there. I'll be signing copies a lot of places, but I know them there and they know me, uh, so they know to hold. Um, so, yeah. Oh, and if it's out before before the 10th, if you pre-order it and you go to my website and you fill out a little form just telling me you pre-ordered it with your address, um, I will send you, they're the best thing in the world, uh, matchbooks for the Ruby. Um, That's awesome. Uh, yeah, so the Ruby is the bar that Elsie owns and Andy works over. And I hired the cover artist, Colin Verdi, who is the most talented man in the world, to create um, essentially matchbooks. Uh, for the Ruby, and they look amazing. You can see pictures of them on, on my website. Um, the only thing is sending matches through the mail is a little <laughs> complicated. So inside, instead of matches, they have a little bag of lavender seeds. Ooh, even better. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, if this airs before it goes up, I got I got just some of these left. So, like, first come, first serve. Cool. <laughs> uh, get a matchbook, because they're gorgeous. Cool. You should have one. Awesome. And uh, and what are you reading right now? Uh, I am reading Rough Trade by Katrina Carrasco. I hope I pronounced that correctly, um, which is the sequel, I think, to The Best Bad Things. Um, and I am enjoying it. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, listeners, I'm not going to make you listen to me any more than you have to. You know where to find me. Um, Lev, thank you so much for talking with me today. Oh, thank you. Especially uh, dealing with my brain fog and, and all of that. Oh, please. It is it, uh, my pleasure to chat with you always. And I really hope you recover soon. And I'm thank you so much for like pushing through just for me. I feel very guilty, honestly. No, but no. In I was like, public relations mode. No, I was so excited. Like since we booked this and, and honestly, like with, when the day coil kicks in, I'm, generally okay i just sound awful <laughs> okay well yeah. uh so, yeah. i hope you i hope you sound and feel better soon <laughs> thank you thank you for listening to no page unturned part of the geekly inc podcast family if you like the show please show us some love with a rating and review on your favorite podcast app you can follow us on twitter and instagram at no page podcast the show is edited by me steph kingston our amazing theme music is by Bad Sparrow, and you can check them out at Bad Sparrow Music. And our cover art is by Chango Chimango, who you can check out on Instagram and Twitter at Chango Chimango.